I want to highlight just one thing here really quickly in our bulletin. Uh, this Wednesday night, we've just finished our, our Welcome Home study, uh, and we are going to be starting a new study, 40 Questions About Interpreting the Bible. And so, uh, you know, if you, you're somebody who tries to read your Bible and be faithful in that area, but you say sometimes, you know, I just have a hard time understanding what it means, and I have a hard time kind of applying this to my life. I think this study will will help you in that. We're going to just talk about how to study the Bible and, and how we interpret and, and understand the meaning of the Bible and how we apply it to ourselves. And so uh, we're going to do that along with our, our kind of getting back into our uh, prayer time as well. And so that'll be this, this Wednesday night. And I really encourage you to come out and be a part of that at 6.30. We also have our next generation if you have children. And that's a really important time to, to have them here. It's a time where we really have some good teachers who are teaching them and training them and, and pouring uh, pouring into them. So uh, please be here this Wednesday night at 6.30. Jared, you come in this time. Good morning. Good to see each and every one of you here. Glad you came out to be with us. We want to especially welcome visitors this morning and let you know that we're glad you're here. And uh, we hope to make a have a so a couple things I'm going to hit on real quick before we get into the the uh, word is just want to remind everybody that you might see cards like this in your pew in front of you. This one here says, take the next step. And it's an opportunity to write your name, phone number, email, and address in there. Check off whether you're a first-time guest, if you'd like to serve in the church somewhere. So this is not just for first-time people. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about the church or about becoming a Christian, uh, talk with a pastor. There's several different options on there. So Please utilize these. Uh, make sure that you check that out. This could be for a first-time visitor. It could be for a 50-year member. So it's not just a one-size-fits-all. Or it is a one-size-fits-all, rather. It's not just for one particular group of people. So take a look at that. You'll notice on the back side of that, it also clarifies what our vision statement is, which is to glorify God by growing disciples uh, of Jesus in community. And then you've also got the option here with the Connect card that can be grabbed out there at the table after the service, but these are ways that you can kind of communicate more discreetly to us what your particular thoughts or needs are, and allow us to take care of that. So if you do happen to fill one of these out, you can turn that in to any of us, uh, me or Vance or Andrew or anybody at the table. You could even drop that in the offering plate if you want to do that as well, and we'll get that. So uh, for our call to worship this morning, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 12 through 27, sort of kind of in the middle of a, of a chapter there, but those are the verses that we're going to look at. So please be turning to that, 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 through 27. What do we mean when we say call to worship? Well, it, it could, it's going to be more in-depth than what I'm going to be able to explain here. But basically, we're going to start our, our, our service with a reading from God's Word. It's a call to worship in that we believe that when we open God's word and read it, you're not just hearing me, you're hearing God. I'm not going to read any of my words, I'm going to read the words of God. And so we take that, we understand that to be God's invitation to us as a church uh, to enter into worshiping him. And so we'll look at what his word says and then we typically will pray. Most of the time the prayer will be reflective in some way of what we've looked at. And that's sort of a model for us when we come to God's Word to hear it as God's Word 
to also think about what it said and then think about our right response to that word in prayer. That's sort of a, a synopsis of what we mean by a call to worship. So let's look at this word, this, this word from God this morning. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of, of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many members, or many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we think less honor, honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And on our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. Will you pray with me? Father, we hear your voice this morning speaking to us through your word. And maybe it's a different concept for some of us to think that, well, no, that's just Jared and he's reading the scriptures. That's not untrue, but it's not the total truth. I'm reading your testimony to us. You have spoken so far already in this, in this, this morning to us just merely by the reading of what you've recorded for us. These are not merely the words of men. They're not just the, the, the vibrations of my vocal cords and, and, the, and sending that out into waves. It is the voice of God being declared to God's people. And so, God, we thank you that you've spoken. We thank you that we have received your word. God, this is enough for us. If we heard nothing else today, we would have received the words of God. But gratefully, Lord, thankfully, in your grace, you will dispense even more grace and more of your word and, and more food for the soul. And we rejoice in that. But God, we also thank you and praise you that you have made us a body, that you have united us together so that we can enjoy fellowship, so that we can enjoy unity. Uh, and, and not just that, but there's a shared work of ministry. It's not just the, the work that, that all on one person. It's not all Andrew's work or all my work or Vance's work or the Sunday school teacher's work. It's the, jo uh, the, the, the joint effort of every member of Union Baptist Church to work together for the good of Union Baptist Church. And we thank you that in your wisdom, your grace, your goodness, you have so constructed the body that it is a shared work that doesn't weigh uh, exceedingly heavy on one person. God, but we confess as much as we recognize and rejoice in these truths, we also confess that we have opportunities for disunity often. Sometimes we're the cause of those, those opportunities, and God, sometimes we just have to deal with them. 
Sometimes we fall short, often, most of the time perhaps, we fall short of the full unity that we ought to enjoy and the full member care that we ought to extend. And so as we read your words and we take great comfort and great joy is found in your truth, we must also confess that we are so far from the standard, God, of, of full, complete maturity that we still need grace. And so we plead with you, God, believing that what you've commanded you will give the grace to, to accomplish. And so we confess, we we. we uh, enjoy your truth, God. We delight that we have it, but we do not possess it in its completeness. We are not the body as it should be. So help us, God. Forgive our weakness. Forgive, God, our fallings short of your glory. I pray that you would help us to, to, to work together, to strive together for the unity, and that we would achieve that unity, God, so that we can be one in Christ as you and Christ are one. God, grant us the grace we need to improve, for without your help, Without your intervention, God, we will fall short and continue to fall short of that, that mark. But by your grace, God, we will attain it. And so we plead for that grace this morning. Be glorified among us, O Lord. Amen. Pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we do confess that you are great, that your power is over all, that you reign over all, that there is not one molecule in this universe that is outside of your domain outside of your control and Lord we also confess and know that you are good and that as Romans tells us that you're working all things out for the good of those who love you those who are the called and so because of that Lord uh, we, we can trust in you and we can believe in you despite uh, whether trials come and no doubt Lord there are some of us here th this morning who are undergoing various kinds of trials. And I pray for each one of us this morning that you just help us to rest and to trust in your goodness and in your ability to deliver us and to work out good even out of our problems. Lord, we pray as we give this morning that we would do it from a spirit of love, a spirit of worship for you, that it would be received in, in that spirit and that it would be beneficial for the use and the upbuilding of your kingdom and your church. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. If you would, take your Bibles this morning and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 6, but really focusing. Uh, last week we focused on verses 1 through 3, and this week we'll look at 4, 5, and 6. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. The Apostle Paul says this, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now our text for this morning, there is one body and one Spirit just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now, we remember this morning as we contemplate this text, and it's so important when you're reading the Bible to read it in the context of, of the argument that, that's being made. This is especially true in the writings of the Apostle Paul because 
he's typically writing a letter and dealing with the issue. And if you pick out one verse and you don't focus on the whole context, you can radically misunderstand what's being said. Like if you walk into a conversation and you haven't been uh, up to date with what's being talked about and you just get a bit or a piece, you can run off in all different directions with it. The same thing is true uh, with the Bible. And so when we come to these verses, verses 4 through 6, we need to be reminded of what Paul has been teaching. And I'm not going to do as detailed as as we have been, but but we remember that Paul has been outlining the truth that in Christ, all of us who have faith are united as one people. In the Old Testament, there were Jews who were the people of God and there were Gentiles who were not a part of the people of God. But in the New Testament, because of Christ, everyone who has faith, whether you're Jew or Gentile, whether you're rich or poor, black or white, no matter where you're from, If you have faith in Christ, you are part of the one people of God, the family of God, the temple that's being built into a a habitation for the Lord. And so Paul has been laboring on this and telling us and teaching us that we are one in Christ. He talked about the fact that this was a mystery in, in ages past. Again, they were thinking in terms of Jews and Gentiles that somehow being a part of the people of God, you had to be a descendant of Abraham. But now in the gospel, that, that it has been revealed that God's people in verse 6 of, of chapter 3, the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and we might say co-partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So Paul prayed at the end of chapter 3. He prayed that God would be glorified in the church And we noted how that really meant that the way that God would be glorified through the church is when we act as one, when we are walking and living in in unity, when we are in love and we are experiencing the love of Christ. Then we mentioned that in chapter 4, there's a transition. This is kind of a turning point in the book of of Ephesians where we transition from Paul just stating some, some things that are objective realities there's not, there's not a lot of commands in chapters 1 through 3. But chapter 4, we turn from uh, just stating the uh, objective truth, those in, in, indicatives, and we turn to imperatives, to, to commands. Forty different times in these last three chapters, Paul is going to command us to live in a certain way, to walk in a certain way, to have a certain lifestyle. And uh, so much of what he's talking about here is, is unity. We looked at that last week in these first few verses. The things that he's commanding us are, are to have attributes and to have virtues in our life and to act in a certain way that will, he says, maintain the unity of the Spirit. So in chapters 1 through 3, he's been building up to this crescendo of showing us you are one in Jesus Christ. Now in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, he's saying live in a way act in a way, behave in a way that preserves that kind of unity. And so what were those things? What what are the kinds of things that preserve unity in the church or the family or in the workplace? What what are they? Well, humility, uh, having a low opinion of yourself, gentleness, not being rough and not being uh, grumbling all the time and being harsh toward one another. Patience, this is another thing 
that, that preserves the unity. These things don't create the unity in the church. Jesus Christ creates the unity. The Gospel creates the unity. That's the objective reality of our unity. But we need to live in a way that preserves that unity and that safeguards it. We need to make sure that we don't break the unity of the Spirit. We just looked and saw how this was no small thing for the Apostle Paul. He, he urged them to do this. And he said, look, you need to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. This is something that ought to be pressing in your mind. This is ought, to, ought to be something that's foremost in your mind as you think about the church. One of the first things that you ought to be thinking about, I don't want to act in any way that is going to disrupt the unity of the church. That's sort of the objective reality and then the commands. But as we look at these verses this morning, we, we might think of these things that are mentioned. There are seven things that are mentioned. One body, one spirit, one call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all who is through all and in all. Seven different things that are mentioned. We might think of these as sort of the tangible realities that, that the, the things that we experience, subjective realities. You see, objective things are things out there that, that I may or may not experience. We say that's objectively true, but it doesn't really affect me. But subjective things are things that are in my life. There are things that are affecting me. So these are subjective realities. They are experiences in the life of the believer that I think all unify us as the church of God. And we're going to look at that this morning. An illustration might help to, to start off with. We were talking about sports this morning, and if you're a Kentucky Wildcat fan, then you, you have reason to celebrate. You're not terrible anymore, so uh, at least for now. Uh, that's a good thing. But, but there's a helpful illustration, I think, in, in sports that might show us the difference between this objective reality of our unity and the tangible realities that we experience that bring us together. You know, when you look at a sports team, what is it that unifies them? Well, we might say, well, obviously, they're all on the same team. That's what unifies them. You know, the Wildcats, they're all wearing the same blue jerseys, and on the front of that jersey, it, it has University of Kentucky, right? And so, you know, they're all part of the same team. That's sort of the objective reality. But here's the thing, and we might use the Wildcats as an illustration for this. There have been years when it didn't look like they were all on the same team, right? There, there have been years when they took the field in football and you think, are these guys, are they even running the same plays? Are, are they even on the same t team? They don't seem to be working together. They, they don't seem to have things that, that, that are unifying them together. They're, they're not playing as a, as a team. We've seen that before in basketball. You see the one person who's who's really just thinking about himself. He's a showboat. He's a, he's a ball hog. It's all about him and how many points. And, and you look and you go, yeah, you're playing great, but you're not playing great as a team. You're, you're not unified. You see, the reality is, as an objective reality, the jerseys, the fact that you were on this team, that unified you. You're, you're on the same team. You're wearing the same jersey. You have the same coach and so on. But, but there are some subjective realities that take take them from just being on the same team in, in name and actually playing in a unified way. I mean, we've seen uh, teams before, haven't we? And, and we, they, they play so well together. Uh, it's almost as if they're one person. They're just, their movements are all synchronized perfectly. 
And so you, you see the wide receiver that, that runs the route and the quarterback throws the ball before that person is even there. But he knows that his receiver is going to be in this spot in this moment and he throws the ball and he's there, right? Now again, that doesn't happen in the past. That didn't happen a lot with the Wildcats and maybe it's happening a little more now and that's, that's a good thing. Uh, but, but you see, what is it that takes them from simply being on the same team, wearing the same jersey, to, to this experience where they're playing together, they are unified. Well, there's some objective realities. If the coach is good, he's instructing his players about what they're going to do. And so there's a unified message that is coming from this coach. And every player on the team knows this is our plan, this is our goal, this is what we're trying to accomplish, and they all know their individual part that they play in making that happen. And so they have a playbook. And they have an offensive system that they run and a defensive scheme that they run in football. And every part, if, if they're a unified team, they're, they're playing according to that scheme or that, that system or the plays that they're running. And those, those subjective realities, those plays that they are all playing on the same playbook, those bring that team together. And you say, man, they are playing like a team now. They are together. They're one. They're, this team is really unified as, as one team. You see, those subjective realities move it from being just unified in name, they're the Wildcats, to being actually unified on the field and looking like uh, they, they actually know what they're doing. So there's one playbook. There's one coach giving the same instruction. There's one offensive system. There's one game plan. There's one defensive scheme. There's one burning desire. They all have the same passion to be victorious. Those are the tangible realities that unite them together as a team. And you see that's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. He's saying, look, you are one. You're on the same team. You belong to Christ. Uh, you've been saved. You've been redeemed. Objective reality. You're part of the people of God. But look, there's some tangible realities in your life. If you are a Christian that that serve to actually bring you together in a unified way. Well, what are they? Uh, well, there's one body, and there's one spirit, and, and there's one hope. We all have one common goal. There's one Lord. There's one faith. There's one baptism. There's one God and Father over all who is in all and, and through all. And so these are the, the experiential, the subjective realities that we walk in as Christians. And, and if they're true of us, and if we are actually living in those realities and walking in those realities, they serve to bring us together. They, they unite us as one. They, they take us beyond just the fact that says, yes, we're united because we're Christians. And that it actually makes us one. It brings unity. We'll look and unpack how that works with each one of these things. But one person said this. I think it's, it's helpful just to kind of give a, an overall view of, of this passage. He says, there may be numerous outward things that divide us, whether age, gender, color of our skin, the status that we have in society. There are numerous outward things that divide the people of God. But there are fundamental inward experiences that bind them together. Notice he says these are inward experiences. These are not just objective things out there. These are things, if you are a Christian, that you have and that you are experiencing. experiencing, And they bind us together in an indissoluble, indissoluble spiritual oneness. 
verses 4 through 6, point to seven ones that constitute the foundation on which the Spirit affects a true oneness among the redeemed. Now let me say a couple things just about the structure of this fact, uh, of this text and these seven things. First of all, there are seven. If you study the Bible, you know that's a, an important number. It's a, it's a number that signifies perfection. And I think there's a point to that. I think there's a reason that Paul chooses seven things to highlight. I think he's urging us to walk in unity and he wants us to understand that unity is this idea of perfection or maturity. You see, in the New Testament, love and the unity that comes along with love is really pictured as sort of a, a perfection or a, a completeness or, or a maturity. So we, we read back, and I think that's what Paul's getting at in verses 18 and 19 of chapter 3. He says in verse 18, I want you to be strengthened so that you'll be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Why does he want you to know this love? Why does he want you all to have love for one another, to know the love of Christ? That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You see, in the Christian life, what is the pinnacle? Is, is the pinnacle just to have all of this knowledge? Is the pinnacle to be some kind of super spiritual warrior? To, to have people really look up to you and revere you? No, the pinnacle of the Christian life is love within the body of Christ and, and unity. Not only unity with one another, but unity with God. And so when you know the love of Christ, you are filled, he says, with all the fullness of God in this experiential kind of way. We see this also, I think, in Colossians 3. 14, Colossians 3.14, he says, and above all of these, he's been listing some commands, he says, above all of these, put on love. You know what Paul means when he says above all these things? He doesn't just mean this is really important. He's saying this is the most important thing. This is the pinnacle. Above everything else, it's not to diminish other things. It's not to diminish other virtues or other thing, other parts and aspects of the Christian life. But he's just saying this is the pinnacle. This is the most important thing, Christian, this morning. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, this is the most important thing. Put on love. Above all these, put on love. Why? Because love is what binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love brings us together in perfect harmony. Unity. That's why it's so important. The pinnacle of the Christian life is that we might be united together as one with each other and that we might be united as one with the Lord. And love is that thing. Love is the mechanism that makes that happen. That is the key. That is the pinnacle of the Christian life. And that's what he's driving at. That's why I think he uses seven things because he's talking about our unity and he's showing us that this is the pinnacle. This is perfection. This is completeness when you are unified as the body of Christ. You know, I don't want to get too far off on this, but I think there's an important point here. This principle of being unified through love is not something that just happens in us. In, in us. This is something that exists within our triune God. God himself is not just a single person. We know that if you've studied the Bible, the Bible teaches that the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, that these are distinct persons, and yet they're one. And what is it 
that, that makes them one? What is it that binds them together? I think the essence of what binds them together in this perfect harmony is love. Their love is a perfect love for one another. And so they are perfectly unified. They are a perfect oneness in threeness. We also know this in marriage, right? What is it we, we say you're no longer two but one flesh? The Bible teaches that. What is it that unites us as one in marriage? It is love that brings us together. Let me read. And again, I don't want to spend too much time on this because I want to get into, into these things. But listen to what Jesus prays for. This is in John 17, what we call the high priestly prayer. Jesus is about to be crucified. He knows the end of his ministry is coming and he offers a prayer to God on behalf of his apostles and on behalf of us who, who are believers. And so John 17, verse 20, listen to what Jesus prays for. He says, I do not ask for these only, that is for these apostles, the 12, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and me. We have believed in Jesus Christ through the word of the apostles, all Christians throughout history. So I do not ask for these only, but also for all those who will believe in me through their word. What's the prayer request? What is he praying? The petition that they may all be one. And this was important to Jesus. He's praying this as he's about to be crucified. This is, this is important. He wants us to be one. But notice what he says, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the word, the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. And then listen to this, that they may be one even as we are one. So the pinnacle of the Christian life is that we experience oneness with each other in the body of Christ, just as the Son is one with the Father. But it doesn't end there. It's not that we, we become one with each other, but listen to this, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me even love them even as you loved me. So he's saying here really what what happens is not only do we become one with each other but but we become one with the Lord himself. Christ is in us, we're in him, we're unified, we're in Christ. That's an amazing reality to think about. That's why I say when he uses the number 7 He's displaying to us here that this is the perfection of the Christian faith. What is the pinnacle? What is, what is all of this leading to? Well, it's that we might be united together and that we might be united to God. Unity in, is not some tangential thing that we can set aside and act as if it's unimportant. It is the pinnacle of the Christian faith. Now, one more word, and this one will be much shorter, about the structure of, this, of these seven things that are mentioned. I said there were seven, which points to this perfection of unity, this completeness of our unity. But, but these seven things are grouped into three different categories, and they're grouped around the Trinity. So the first three things ha are grouped around the Spirit. There's one body, there's one Spirit, and just as we have one hope. These three things are associated with the Holy Spirit, and we'll see that. And then the next three things are associated with the Son, with with Jesus Christ. 
There is one Lord. When Paul uses the word Lord, most often in his writings, he's talking about Jesus Christ. There is one Lord, one faith, our faith in Jesus Christ, and one baptism, which is showing our union with Jesus Christ. So one Lord, one faith, one baptism. That's the Son. That is Jesus Christ. And then the seventh thing is the Father. So we began with the Spirit, the Son. The last thing is the Father. There's one God and Father over all and through all and in all. So we look and see in this text, Father, Spirit, or, or Spirit, Son, and Father. And each of these realities is, is categorized and kind of connected to one of the persons of the Trinity. And so let's just dive in this morning. Then we, we see that, first of all, uh, we are part of the same body. There's one body. This is a metaphor that Paul uses throughout his writings in Romans and Corinthians and Ephesians and Colossians. Uh, he uses it and tries to, he really draws out some different and, and various applications. But, but the main truth that is conveyed in this idea of being one body is that we are organically and vitally connected to one another. Jared read this morning in 1 Corinthians 12 that we're part of one body. And, and that is what this is demonstrating. There's a unity that we share because when we believe in Jesus Christ and when we enter into the church, we become one with other believers in Jesus Christ. Now, this is a, a very important truth in, in the New Testament. This idea of being one body is perhaps the strongest metaphor in the New Testament to express the unity of the church. I think it's hard to think of anything, any other illustration that might that might heighten or might be stronger than the idea of being the same body. We, we understand that your body is all connected, right? There's diversity. Your body is not all the same part. That's the, that's the point Paul makes. You have eyes, which are different than ears, and it's different than your nose, which is different than your feet, which is different than your hands and your arms. There are all kinds of various different kinds of parts, or as Paul says, members that make up the body, and yet there's one body. You see, there's unity in diversity. And this is not just some kind of loose kind of, uh, of unity. This is an organic unity. Uh, everything that affects, whatever affects my foot, it, it affects my whole body, right? It's all organically connected. That, that is, there's a living, vital connection between my fingers and, and my toes. If I get an infection in my foot, it's gonna, it's gonna hurt the whole body, right? If something happens, uh, in my eye, it's, it's gonna affect my entire body. That's because there's an organic, living union between every part of your body, and yet there's diversity within the body. So there's that distinctness and yet unity. Now we know, as we mentioned, that each of these things is associated with the Spirit. And Jared read this morning that it is the Spirit that leads us into the body. In 1 Corinthians 12, 12, for just as the body is one and has many members and all members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. And then he says this, for in one spirit, we are all baptized in one body, Jews and Greeks, slaves or free, and are all made to drink of one spirit. This is why I say that this, this category is associated with the Holy Spirit because it is the Spirit of God that leads us into the waters of baptism and that unites us to the church 
of Jesus Christ. But notice, there is only one body. There is one body. So if you are a believer and, and you're led by the Spirit into the church, that means that you are organically connected with other believers. And we need to be abundantly clear about this because there are so many people in our day. Our society is one that is really uh, hampered by this idea of individuality. I am me and, and it's just all about me and I'm not really connected to, to anybody else. I can do me. I can be me and let other people just you, you be you, right? There, there's no association. There's no connection. I don't want to be connected to... I just want to be my own person. I'm, I'm an individual. But if you're a Christian this morning, the Bible doesn't deny a sense of individuality. But if you are a Christian this morning and the Spirit of God has saved you and led you into the church, guess what? You are no longer just an individual. You are organically connected to other believers. There's a real, vital, spiritual connection between you and those who also profess faith in Jesus Christ. Those who have also entered into the church, into the body of Jesus Christ. So this is what you cannot do. You, you cannot do like a lot of people want to do and just say, well, that's the church and the church is so screwed up. The church is so messed up. There's so many problems. And so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to come over here and I'm going to be my own Christian. I can serve Jesus. I can live for Jesus all on my own. And I don't want to be a part of that church because it's messed up and there's sinful there's hypocritical people, there's mean people in there, they, they don't do what's right, and so I'm just going to stay over here. Well, guess what? You may be thinking that, and you may be trying to live that out, but you are connected to those people. There's a living, real, vital connection between you and them. All you're doing by that is contributing and adding to, to division and sin within the body when you seek to remain disconnected. The idea of a member of a body being disconnected from the body is a bloody monstrosity, isn't it? Y'all came in this morning, y'all would be freaked out if there was an arm laying in, in the aisle here, the center aisle of the church, just a, an arm disconnected from the rest of the body, right? It's a sign of something's wrong, like something's really wrong. It's a sign that this... This body part is dead. It's not connected anymore to the body. That's the way it is for Christians. If you're not connected to the body, there, there's some problem. Now, let me just say a word too, because there are, there are some people who, uh, who take this idea of the body and, and there being one body and say, well, I'm part of the one universal, invisible, mystical body of Christ. And so I don't really need to participate and be connected to any local visible church, right? I'm just part of the, the big universal body. Well, the question is, there, there are a lot of problems with a statement like that, but, but the biggest problem is this. The only way that you experience this idea of a body is when you're connected in a local church, okay? If, if, if you are saying that this is a reality that I experience, and yet you're not connected and associated in any kind of meaningful way to other believers. Listen, you're not part of the body. There's just not a connection there. And so we need to be careful. The whole point, the whole point of the metaphor is that we're together and we're connected as believers. And so 
what kind of nonsense is it to say, I'm going to take this, this metaphor that just shows this real living, vital union, this connection that I have with other believers, and I'm going to use that as justification not to be connected in any way to other believers. I'm part of the one universal, mystical, invisible church, and, uh, but I'm not going to be part of any local, visible church. Well, well you're, you're missing the point there. The whole point is that there's a living, vital connection. We only experience the realities of the body. Listen to me. You can only experience the realities of the, the New Testament church, the body, when you enter into a local, visible body of Christ. You can't experience them. You know, people say, I can just worship Christ out in the church and I'm a part of the mystical body. You can't experience the body out in the woods as you worship the Lord by yourself. You can't experience it. You can only experience the body when you are part of some local, visible manifestation of that body. And in fact, every time Paul uses it, he, he most often doesn't use it of this big, overarching one body like he does here. Like in Corinthians, he's talking to you Corinthians. Your church is like a body. And there, there are hands and there are feet and you all need to work together. That's the point. So there's one body. Secondly, we have the same spirit. We have the same Spirit. The Spirit is, is now mentioned directly. We know that the Spirit is omnipresent. He is God. He's fully God in every way that the Father is God. The Spirit is God. And, and that is true when it comes to omnipresence. And so the Holy Spirit is omnipresent. He dwells in each and every one of, uh, of us as believers. Jesus told His disciples that you've seen the Spirit at work with me, that you've seen the Spirit, He's been with you, but when I go back to heaven, I'm going to send Him, and He will be in you. And so the Holy Spirit of God comes and resides within each and every believer. We saw this happens on the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts. The Spirit of God comes into the church. Two other times in the book of Acts, the Spirit comes. It comes first on the, the Jews, and then it comes on the Samaritans, and then it comes on Gentile believers. And so he's showing that this reality of the Spirit is going to be for all people, for all who believe. And so we have and are indwelt by the Spirit. The Spirit then will create unity among the church. This is one of those tangible realities that if we have experienced, will bring Unity. How so? Well, well, think of the way that the Spirit works. And when you see the way that the Spirit works, then you'll understand how the Spirit brings unity. What does the Spirit do? Well, one, the Bible teaches that the Spirit is our teacher. He, he's our guide in, in truth. And so what is it that brings division in the church? Sometimes it's error. But if we're all being guided by the Spirit, being taught by the Spirit, He's going to bring unity in terms of what we're believing. The Spirit also shapes our character. We talk about the fruits of the Spirit being things like love and joy and peace and patience. What is it that, what is it that causes friction in the church when we don't have love and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control? That brings division. So the Spirit brings unity by making us people who love and have joy and peace and patience and kindness. And then the Spirit is also our guide throughout life. And so we see Jesus being led by the Spirit. We see the Apostle Paul and his ministry being led by the Spirit. If we're all being led by the same Spirit, how can we be disunified? How can there be friction in the church if we're all walking in the Spirit? 
and being led by the Spirit, if the same Spirit that is in me, that is guiding me and governing my actions and leading me is guiding your actions and governing you, how can we be disunified? The Spirit brings unity. The third thing is that we have the same hope. And again, this is a work that the Spirit brings. He, he, he verifies with our, our spirit that we are children of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. It is the Spirit that seals us for, as a guarantee for our inheritance. But again, our, our shared hope is a tangible reality that, that should unite us. If your goal, we talked again about teams, right, and, and, and sports. Like if the team all has a unified goal to win the game, and that's, that's really the top goal, that's really the top hope of every player, well then each player is going to do what they need to do in order to, to, to make that happen. So it's not going to be about me, it's not going to just be about how many points I can score and making sure that I get on ESPN in the top ten highlights, it's going to be, look, I don't care, whatever, whatever has to happen to get our goal to win this game. That's, if, if that means me just making one tackle and being supportive of the other team, then that's what I'm going to have to do. And listen, that's the way it works in the church. We have a unified goal. And if your goal is, and your hope is eternity in heaven, and that's my hope, and that's my goal, then we're going to be headed in the same direction. That's going to unify, unify us. Division arises because people have lost focus on the ultimate goal. Division comes when we lose sight of where we're headed. But not only that, if my hope is, is heaven, then, then I hold these things very loosely in this life. A lot of times friction and disunity come in life because people say, I want this and I'm going to make sure I get it. Well, what's wrong with that person? When, when they're so angry about making sure that this happens. What, what is it that's going on? Well, they've set all their hope on this. That's what their goal is. That's what they're living for. That's their passion. That's their love. They've made it into a God. But for us as Christians, our hope is heaven. And so I can hold those things loosely. I'm not as concerned about that. My goal and my hope is the glory of God. My hope is this hope of heaven. Not only that, but we have the same Lord. There's one Lord. Now that word Lord can mean different things in the New Testament. Uh, it, it, it talks about the fact that God has been exalted Lord, or Christ has been exalted Lord over everything. He's the, he's the one in control of the, uh, this world. Uh, the word Lord, as, as Paul means it, can, can imply that Jesus is God when it says Jesus is Lord, right? He, he's implying there that the deity of Jesus Christ but very simply, that word means in the most basic sense, Lord just means somebody who's a ruler, somebody who's in, in control. Maybe you've read a book or seen a movie where they, they talk about the lords. Who, who are the lords? They're the ones who own the land and are in control. Uh, the lords are the ones who have slaves and, and they're the master. They're the ones in charge. And so when we say that Jesus is our Lord, what we're saying is that He's, in the, he's the one in control of my life. I'm submitting to Him. I'm His slave. I'm His servant. And He's my Master. And guess what, Christians? There is one Master. And if He's your Master, and you're submitting to what His commands, and He's my Master, and I'm submitting to His commands, well, then we're going to be unified, aren't we? The Master isn't going to tell you to do this and lead you in this way and tell me to do something else, right? He's going to unify us. 
And so if we're walking in that, we will be unified. Jesus said in Luke 6.46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? If we're submitted to Christ as our Lord, that tangible reality will bring about unity in the church. Not only is there one Lord, but we have the same faith also. That word faith, can be used in two different ways. It can be used of my personal faith, my trust in the Lord, or sometimes that word is used as the faith, as in the, the core teachings of the Christian faith. Uh, and so there's that kind of objective and subjective use of the word. But ultimately, the two really can't be uh, distinguished. They, they, they can't be separated in that way. Since my personal trust in Jesus has to do with the objective realities, the faith that of, of what has been taught concerning Jesus. And so you say, well, I believe in Jesus. Well, who is Jesus? What, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? And, and as soon as you start telling me, well, he's the son of God. He died on the cross to, to deliver me from my sin. Well, that's, that's the faith. And so my personal trust is, is related to this teaching. You know, Jude warned us in Jude 1.3 that we ought to contend for the faith that has once for all been delivered to the saints. Doctrine is important. And oftentimes you think, well, doctrine, man, there's one faith. That isn't something that brings unity, is it? I mean, most of the time what I hear is that people say, you know, doctrine divides. We don't want to really get into doctrine here because doctrine, it brings up too many divisions. Teaching just divides people. So let's just kind of not talk about doctrine. Let's just, let's just be united. Well, that's actually completely and entirely false. It's upside down. You know what unites us? What unites us is that we believe the same thing and that we believe it deeply. And so doctrine doesn't divide us. Doctrine is actually right. Doctrine is what unifies us. Doctrine is only divisive if someone isn't teaching the truth. And in that case, it's some, it's the false teaching that is dividing, not, not doctrine. Now, we do know that sometimes there are matters that are not entirely cleared out and spelled out in, in the Bible. And so that we would call those kind of things non-essentials. And so if somebody holds a different view on this or that, we might say, you know, let's agree to disagree. But when we're talking about the core of the Christian faith, the Bible's the Word of God, Jesus is the Son of God, He died and rose again for our sins, that faith in Him is what saves us. All of those kind of core teachings... Those are the things that unite us and bring us together. And so we ought to be united because of the faith. And then there's one baptism. Baptism is that God-sanctioned way that we profess our faith in Christ. But what is baptism? Baptism is a testimony, isn't it? When I'm baptized or when a person is baptized, they are saying, what has happened in my life is that I've died to sin and I've been raised with Christ. I died with Christ and I've been raised with Christ to walk in a new way. I've been freed. The, the baptism teaches that we've been freed from the power of sin. Well, what is it? What is it that divides people? What divides people? Sin divides people. What is it? Anger and wrath and malice and envy and gossip. Those are the things that divide us. And so if we as a community, as a church, have been freed from sin and the power of sin, we're no longer under the domain of gossip. 
We're no longer under the power of envy and rivalry and strife and anger and gossip. If, the, if we've been set free from those things and we've been raised to walk in Christ who, who was a preeminent person of love, well, then we ought to be unified as a church. There's one baptism and that baptism is a uniting thing. There's also one God and Father over all and through all and in all. It's our relationship with our Heavenly Father ultimately that unites us. If our, heavenly, if our relationship with our Heavenly Father is right, listen to this, if our relationship with the Heavenly Father is right, then our relationship with all of His children will be right too. You can't be right with God the Father and not be right with God's children. That's what John teaches us in, in, in 1 John. You can't be right with God the Father and not be right with His children. So in, in 1 John 4.20, it says this, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. It's just, well, okay. That's one of the really plain things in Scripture. Okay? For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from Him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. If you love God the Father, you've got to love God's children who are your brother. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. If you love the Father, you love the Father's children. Okay? And so if we're united, if there's one Father, and, and we're all His children, we are going to be united as a church, right? It is God the Father who unites us. We all know that reality in, in our families. Mostly, hopefully, you get along with your, your siblings. But what is it that brings you together? Typically, it's your most of all, your, your love for your parents. And you love and you care for them. So you go and you visit them on Thanksgiving and Christmas and you're together with all of the children of your parents because you have a love for your father and a love for your mother. Well, that's the way it is in Christ. If God is our Father and we are His children, we are going to be united with the other children of God. Alright, in, in conclusion, we, we might say this as we go back to this metaphor of, of a team that I hope is, is helpful. You know, if, if a team gets out on the field and they're not unified, you know there's some issue, right? If there's not unity, they're not playing together as a team. What's, what's going on? Well, it might be poor coaching. The coach has not communicated the same game plan to every player. He just didn't do an effective job of letting them know what they were supposed to do. Maybe the, maybe the players haven't studied the playbook. Maybe they didn't take practice seriously and now they don't know what they're supposed to do. So they're supposed, you know, that, that receiver was supposed to cut into the field, into the middle of the field, but instead he ran the wrong route and he ran out. There's, there's not unity. Perhaps the players are all self-focused. They don't have the same goal. They don't, they, they're not, they don't have the same vision for what's going on. Whatever the case, that's the problem. There, there's a problem. And so it is in the church. This morning, if, if there's not unity in the church, what we can clearly understand is that we're not walking in these realities. Somewhere along the way, something is, is disconnected. So, so it may be that we're not walking in, in a way that really signifies that Jesus is our Lord. We may not be walking according to the Spirit. Uh, we may not be acting as a, as a unified body. We maybe have strayed from, 
sound teaching. Maybe we've lost our focus on the one hope that we all share. Maybe we're walking in our flesh instead of walking in the new life that Christ has given us. Perhaps we're failing to live out of our new nature. The other possibility is just simply that these realities are not realities for us. If Jesus is not your Lord, if the Spirit is not in you, if you really are not part of the body of Christ, though you may come to a church gathering, it may be the case that that has never happened for you, that you've never been born again, you've never been made a part of the body of Christ, the Spirit of God is not indwelling you, and Christ is not your Lord, that God is not your Father. If that's the case, I would encourage you this morning to come in faith to Jesus Christ, to believe in Him, so that you may share in those experiences that the rest of us are sharing in. For those of us who have believed, I would encourage you, walk in those realities. As you walk in those things, we as a church will be united.